Welcome, Welcome to, to the Better, Better Call Daddy, Daddy Show. This is Big Daddy. Oh my God, that's hysterical. You're not going to believe this. Oh, oh my God. God. Five stars. Five and a half stars. Papa. My dad is my hero. Grandpa, are you ready? I love a good happy ending. Oh boy. Hey, hey, hey. The phony baloney. And a tit for tatter. Hey, a lot of these things, I don't know where you're getting them from. It sounds like they're coming from when I look in the mirrors. Damn the public. Damn the public. <laughs> Today's guest, Duke Watt, says nonviolence is cool. He's worked in the inner city for over a decade. He's learned how to communicate with people of different races, creeds, and colors, which he uses to inspire change and how people view, deal, and discuss race relations. Duke, welcome. You did such awesome promoting. No guests have done as much promoting as you did. That was so cool. Hey, it's very important to me. So, you know, I really uh, appreciate this time. It's just one of those things where it's like that thing, you know, it's cool. (laughs) So is this the first podcast that you've been on? Yes, it is. It definitely is. It's definitely an honor to be here and to be a part of this right now. I'm like super stoked. I'm beyond happy. So I'm trying to like make sure my lighting's good, that I'm prepared. I studied, I did research and I want to make sure because I know what I know, but I just wanted to be sure that I am versed on what I want to know. So like I said, it, this is fun to me. I've done the radio thing and there's a lot going on. Okay, so tell me about the research that you did. I looked up some stats, I did. And what I found out was, so where you are, I believe that maybe you're in Chicago. Okay, so in Chicago, gun violence definitely is a, is a major problem. The stats in Chicago are actually higher than the whole stats in the the United States. What I was able to find was that there's 12 homicides, gun homicides in Chicago and Cook County. I want to say Cook County and that, I think that surrounds like a lot of area. So there's 12 per 100,000 homicides, gun homicides there. So it's definitely a problem. So what's funny about that, what's actually super cool about it is that I just watched Candyman. So Candyman is like in Cabrini Green. And in this new Candyman, they acted like the projects was tore down. So, and they had like housing, not high rise housing, but, you know, little houses. I didn't know if that was true at all. I didn't, I wasn't able to find that. But I know from what I know that Cabrini Green is like that place. You know, the cops used to be scared to go there. There's a lot of of violence and gang violence, notoriously known for crime. What has your experience been with gang violence? I had a friend of mine who died gang violence. It was one of those things that changed my whole perception towards fighting and towards guns and different things like that because it was just a simple fight. The fight led to his brain hemorrhaging and a couple of days later he died. Being nonviolent is cool. Violence sucks to me. It's not acceptable in any shape or form. Wow. In my life, I have worked with a lot of inner city kids. And that was in Saginaw, Michigan. And Saginaw, Michigan has a reputation of being, it's a a tough area. There's a lot of kids who came to my after school program. I used to run an after school program out there. Coming to our after school program was keeping them out of game. And it was keeping them away from gun violence. And it was keeping them from being hanging out, selling drugs and being 
you know, on the corners, just not doing anything. And then the way it worked out, we were getting paid and we were getting paid really good money, but it ended up being the administration and governor's change. So what it did was it took away our funding. So now everyone's scrambling to get funding. So advocacy for me is definitely a thing because I think that without the funding, those areas like that will continue to just be totally underserved and no one will, you know, unless you have a passion for it, a lot of people don't help. It's one of those things where people in those areas need help, you know, and without the funding, it just gets worse. Funding opens up opportunities. And of course, people in the communities have to take responsibility for their own community. That's the first thing. Because if people take more responsibility, then when you get the funding, you know what to do with it and you use it wisely. And it just doesn't get blown on programs that don't work. After taking personal responsibility for those communities, people need to advocate for funding. The kids need, the kids need a chance. So I, that's what I believe. I believe that it starts with the kids having a chance. Were you ever tempted to go the other way? Yeah, yeah, definitely. In, in my lifetime, it was definitely a thing to, to make a choice, but I had a very strict mother. So he was one of those down south ladies that just was a couple generations removed from slavery or whatnot. And it was just one of those things where like, I wasn't allowed to, he would have been able to see it. So it was one of those things where if I would have tried to do stuff like that, it would have been bad. So, you know, that kept me away. And once you get to a certain age, you realize, dang, man, I really don't want to get jumped into a gang. It's not cool. I, I wouldn't advocate for anybody to be in a gang. It's the wrong way to go. But then some guys who have done some positive things that have went that route, you know, so who am I to say that it's 100% wrong? You know, I won't advocate for that because that's not who I am. And I wouldn't want any kid or any adult to be involved in anything, anything like that. But I know that from the stories I've read, the books I've read, the things I've seen in jails, I've seen some guys that have turned them thing, things around, you know, for themselves and use that kind of environment to help them persuade others not to take that, that route. For some people, it has taught them a work ethic. Sometimes people learn things, the right things, the wrong way. Have you learned anything the wrong way? And you mentioned that you visited jail. Yeah. Oh, yeah. In speaking, there becomes opportunities for you to go in and talk to guys and be able to say, hey, you know, this is not the way to go. You know, if you want to choose this way, be prepared for the harshness and the hardness. My stepdad was definitely instrumental in that. He's a retired prison guard, so he was always that guy that came home, told about, you know, this guy getting assaulted, this guy being hurt, this guy dying. I've learned some things the wrong way. I was able to go through an experience where I got a drinking and driving, and that wasn't a fun time at all. Being able to go through that was like, oh, man, you know, I had to go through a whole bunch of hoops, lawyers, and, but it taught me some things. It taught me some, it taught me the value of sobriety, and it taught me the value of hard work, 
not giving up. And then sometimes when bad things happen, the one thing I did learn the wrong way about that, when bad things happen, you learn who other people are. So it's not just always about you. It hurts because you're in that situation. But sometimes you see who has your back, you know, and you get to see what that person does when the situation is not so great. Because everyone can be there for you when the situation is great. But when the chips are down and, and you make a mistake, then you find out who is really for you, who wants to help. Definitely valuable lessons in that. That's a tough one. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Did you, know, you struggle with sobriety at all? Yes and no. Long story short, I've had double hip surgery, total hip replacement. With that came, you know, surgery, doctor, pain pills. So I definitely know what it feels like for people who are struggling with taking pain pills and opiates and different things like that. I know what that feels like. It's definitely something you don't want to dabble in. And, and it's been a crisis in America. And America has really been set behind a little bit because of the, the opioid addiction. I was just in so much pain and I didn't know why. It wasn't until I got a full body MRI that my surgeon told me, he said, hey, man, you don't have any cartilage in your hips. What that did for me was it allowed me to have the surgery and get out of the pain. And then I was able to get my life back. But the road leading to that wasn't so fun. And I never stopped doing anything, working, pursuing my life. But every day was a struggle. Tell me about the road leading to that. The road leading to that. The road leading to the surgery. Okay, there we go. All right. It was fun. I played sports. I played tennis in college. So I played sports all my life. So I did a lot of training and, you know, a lot of pounding pavement, running, you know, working out, whatever. I was on a scholarship and I was playing a basketball game, a pickup basketball game. I wasn't supposed to be doing it and I hurt my knee. So I tried to hide it so that I didn't get in trouble. And what that led to was rehabbing it and, you know, trying to get strong. For a few years, what was happening is that it wasn't my knee, it was my hips deteriorating. So I developed a limp, went to the doctor, my knee's hurt, man, can you help me? He gives me 120 Vicodin. So now I have 120 Vicodin. So I'm taking one at a time like I'm supposed to. And then it just transpired to where it's like, okay, I'm in so much pain. Now I'm taking three at a time. I never really reached any further than that. But I know what it's like to take like seven in a day. Not fun at all. And you develop a tolerance for it, you know? And it's just one of those things where like, you don't get control over it, it just gets worse. What happens to a lot of people is that once they run out of stuff like that, luckily for me, I, was, I had a good doctor or a doctor that thought he was trying to help me, just making it worse. So he kept giving them to me. I was able to do, have the surgery. So when I had the surgery, I went through, you know, the physical therapy. I went through the withdrawals. That's the worst thing ever is to go through that. And then after the surgery, I was able to be free of that, you know, because I wasn't in pain anymore. I can't go downhill skiing. I shouldn't be doing anything like that, but I can do anything that I, I, I really want to. So. And you were able to just get off of it by yourself? No. What was part of therapy for me was counseling. I ended up going to a center 
where I stayed there for 30 days. And after that, what was really crazy about going through that for me is that the place that I went, I used to work for them. Like I got to see the therapy side and working side. And then I was there as a client, but I was only there for 30 days. You know, that's all, you know, I needed that to help with the withdrawal. So, you know, I've been through some stuff, you know, I'm happy to be on the other side of all that. What was that experience like doing the flip-flop? Did you know people that worked there? Yes. Yes. That was the realness of it. That's when I I felt like, oh my goodness, man, this is a bottom out. These guys know that you used to work here and now you're here. But I I didn't want to be in that situation. So it took for me to say, hey, don't have so much pride because pride will get in the way of getting help. And so I was able to release my pride. Of course, the first couple of days I was shameful. Don't get me wrong. It was very shameful the first couple of days. But when you're in a situation and you're going through it and you really want to get to the other side of it, you have to put that aside. You have to put that aside and you have to say, hey, you got to be tough about this. Let's go, man. Let's get it together. Let's get free of this. And then it'll be in the past. But when it's happening at the beginning, for me, it was really shameful. You know, it was really harsh. It was pretty crappy. But it sounds like it was a positive experience. And the fact that you did work there, you must have trusted it in some way. And it's not like you were approaching it cold. Like some people need to go and they have no idea how to navigate that. How it was for me, the reason I ended up there is because I wanted to go there. So it wasn't one of those things. I I knew what I was getting into. I knew where I was going. So when I walked through the doors in that condition, in that aspect, I knew what I was walking into. I knew it was a safe environment. And I think that a lot of people that go through those kind of things, people sometimes research will help. Like if you know what you're getting into, it helps you prepare for it. I think people should pick what they think is best for them. You know, I was just in that situation where I'd already previously worked there. So I knew what I was getting into and I was able to, you know, come out on the other side. And so I'm good with that. I want to know what happened that was unexpected. I wrote a book in there. I was already starting it, but once I got there, I didn't have much to do because we had to do classes. I think we did classes eight to 10 hours a day but I was able to have a light in my room and I was able to write. So I wrote a pretty good book in there. And the book is called Fear Led Me to Faith. Because when I walked through the doors, I was very, very fearful of how I was going to be judged, how, you know, people were going to look at me. Because I knew that somebody was going to know, like, hey, this is the work here. So the, the book is called Fear Led Me to Faith. I'm hoping to get it published. Uh, in 2022. And it's a good read. It's a, it's about struggling with opioid addiction. I know it's going to help some people. It's going to be one of those books. It's not necessarily totally about religion or anything like that. It's about having the faith to overcome what the obstacle is. And I throw little points in there of things that I learned from childhood that I learned through adulthood. Uh, Give me a little of that childhood part. I had a very strong mother. She was a a very hard worker. She had three children as a single mother. You know, things weren't always easy. My mother's the author today. She's 
you know, she has a very good life. I learned the value of definitely hard work, dedication, and not giving up and not being stuck, not just saying this is it, you know, this is what my life is going to be. I learned how to strive for better. I had to go through some harshness in that time. Like I said, my mother is a Southern lady, so Southern people, they believe different things. I, I went through, in today's terms, it's, a, it's abuse. You know what I mean? Like people say, oh, if you go through that now. But when it was happening to me, it wasn't really like that. It was kind of like I knew what my mother stood for. And when it was punishment time, it was punishment time. Good times and bad times. I had to grow up fast. Do you feel like she influenced your book? Definitely. I was able to read hers in the process of all this. I had it for a long time and I just never read it. Like I just, it just sat on my shelf. You know, it's my mom, it's her story, it's her thing. I was scared to, to really dabble into it. You know, I didn't know what I was going to find. And after a certain amount of time, I was like, I got to read it. So I read it and it was definitely a good read. I learned a lot from that woman. I learned a lot from her. She's a good lady and I love her. So. That's so sweet. And black ladies, so them black ladies be hard on you, though. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I had to go there like, they, hey, sometimes people be, hey, I'm telling you, depending okay, on Okay, so from. since you brought that up, let's talk about the difference between black ladies and white ladies. You wanted to talk about that. Let's talk about that. Okay, all right. All right, so let's go there. My first girlfriend ever was a black girl. We dated for a while. I was married to a white lady for 15 years. My book uh, about interracial dating, is, it's not an accident. It's not something that I just pulled out of the sky. It's something that I went through. The faces, the places, the stares. To me, and I'm a black man, one of the difference to me sometimes is that sometimes white ladies let you get away with things that black ladies won't let you get away with. Some people be looking for an easy way out, and it's not always great that way. I think that's one of the main differences is that- I want you um, to elaborate on that a little bit. <laughs> the black girl get in your face and tell you, hey, little dude, you gonna quit doing that. This ain't happening. I throw blows with you. If you know that's coming, you'll slow down a little bit, you know, cause damn, you know, she gonna get at me if I do something stupid. In my experience, a white lady will just, Ease back and not say too much, but she'll go around your back and, and then be like and catch you from the other side. You know what I mean? So sometimes it's like, man, is she out thinking me or what? You know what I mean? Like, you know, so <laughs> I mean, all ladies are beautiful. That That's definitely a thing, especially if you get one of them girls that's from the hood, though. Like it's a whole different game. when You, <laughs> you got to learn the, the Ebonics, the slang, the cooking. You know, you, you got to be able to deal with some things, you know. And <laughs> looked up, talking about stats, I looked up divorce rates and the highest divorce rate is for black women. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've seen that before. I've seen that stat. And, and uh, also interracial relationships have a pretty high divorce rate. Yeah. And that's why I wrote the book I wrote. It's it's called 101 Steps to a Successful Interracial Relationship. And that's why I wrote it, because of those rates. It's just one of those things where you got to be ready for it. If, you, if that's something that you're going to dabble into and that's something you're going to do and that's the person, you know, everybody can't choose who they fall in love with. You fall in love with who you fall in love with. 
that's just what it is. You know, life is like that. You know, it's just one of those things where if you're going to step into that arena, you got to be ready for the consequences and what is coming for you because there's the family aspect, there's the going out to eat aspect, there's the going to stores to go shopping aspect, getting pulled over by a cop aspect. You know what I mean? Like there's a whole different set of things that happen and rules that you have to play by. If you're not willing to play by those rules, sooner or later, it will catch up with you and you'll fall yourself drifting apart. Because, you know, some people, it's fun. Why it's fun for a little bit, but when it starts to get hard and you start to realize, oh, okay, this is this, and this is this, people back away. Because it's like one of those things where it's at the beginning, it's great. But I'm pretty sure, you know, in relationships, there's a beginning, a middle ground, and then, you know, the end game. If you're not in it for the long haul, you'll you'll find stuff. It's definitely different for people that are in interracial relationships than it is people that are, you know, say, hey, both black or both white, you know, or both Jewish, whatever it may be. It's definitely a thing. I want to know that, about when you switched, because you said you were in a serious relationship with a black girl first. What happened? Yeah, we just, you know, it just drifted apart. You know, we're young. We like different things. I've experienced a lot of different sides of life from an early age. So how I grew up is that one side of the family, of my family, was really, really poor. And my other side of my family was rich. So I got to navigate both. I got to see both sides. It definitely helped me culturally-wise. I got the Black experience and I got the white experience. When I say that, you know, I'm still in my skin, so I have to experience the extra stuff. But when you see different things, like, say, like with the tennis and with, you know, the things I like, books and, and, and golf and opera, you know, you might not believe it, but I like opera. Like, <laughs> so sometimes people don't get to see that stuff and they get trapped in this box. And it's a crappy box to be trapped in because society is going to say, you can only do this. You can only do that, and you can only like this, and you can like that. If you like this, Black people call it a sellout, or you are house inward. you know what I mean? So I'm not going to book that out here, but I think you know what I'm getting at in the audience and you, you know, so, but I think everybody should experience different cultures. I really believe that in my heart. I'm, I'm that guy. Like, if you don't experience different cultures and put yourself in that situation at some point in your life, to me, in my aspect of thinking, you're missing out. Because life, is, to me, is about variety. I want to know, what is something that you were taught as a child that you no longer believe? Oh, wow, you went there. Oh, my goodness, you went there. I grew up, and I, I got to play tennis, so I had Jewish friends. One of the things that I went through as a Black kid going into a Jewish home is that we sat down to eat dinner, and there was a whole plate and there was food on the plate, and there was everything that we had, but no one was sitting there. No one was sitting there. So I asked, hey, you know, what is this play for? Is there somebody else coming to eat? The response I got was that we're waiting for the Messiah to come and dine with us. You know what I mean? Like, so they prepared the whole thing. But the weird part about that was, is that they didn't believe in Jesus at all. Like, Jesus was just this guy. You know what I mean? Black people get taught as we're growing up, going to Christian churches that, 
Jesus is God and, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? Like you get taught that and you get indoctrinated with that kind of stuff. That opened my eyes a lot. You know what I mean? Like, man, these people don't even believe. So one of the things that I don't believe that I learned growing up was I don't believe that there's only one way to be right. When you grow up, sometimes you, you get taught these people are right. These people are wrong. These people are right. These people are wrong. I don't believe that. I'm not that guy that that says, okay, because you believe this, you're right. Because you believe this, you're wrong. You know, I believe that there's beauty in everybody's stuff. And you just take the the pieces you believe in, put it together for yourself, keep on moving. That's what I believe. But you don't feel like the way that you were raised necessarily fell in line with that? No, because how I was raised like that, it was like one of those things where if you don't believe this, you're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong. This is the only right way. I think there's so many different paths that are that are great. There's so many different paths that I don't think that no one really knows what the right is. Everyone's just guessing. People are really serious about the religion stuff. And I'm not here to, to say that one person's wrong or one person is right. I believe in everybody's stuff. I don't believe there's one path. It's funny because I and told my husband that I was going to be talking about interracial dating. And he was like, I can't even believe like it's still a thing. Some people don't be believe in that. I was like, oh, it's a thing. Oh. It's a thing. Oh, it's a, it's a thing. It's a thing. You look around like, I mean, just imagine. I just, okay, so go downtown Chicago and see what you see. You know what I mean? Like in det- in Chicago is one of those cities that's a, a metropolitan city. One day when you're out having dinner with your husband. If you see some stuff, just let it register for a little bit and see what you see and see what you see other people doing that are looking at the same thing you're doing. You know, you're looking at. It's definitely a thing because one of the things that's happening in America right now is that people are trying to figure out how to get more diverse. And they're trying to figure out how to not be that person that's just saying, okay, We don't want nothing to do with you guys because we're over here. Diversity and inclusion is definitely a thing, whether it's black, white, Jewish, gay, transgender. Some people don't believe in none of that stuff, but diversity and inclusion is definitely happening. Whether you like it or not, the agenda seems to be pressing forward on it. Just the open dialogue. All this stuff, the gun violence, interracial dating, diversity and inclusion, it all starts with dialogue. And if people are scared to talk about stuff, that's the worst thing ever. You know, oh, I don't want to say this because I might offend that person. Sometimes you got to say what you got to say and see what you get because, you know, it might help you learn. I want to know when you <laughs> experience racism throughout your life, are there times that stick out oh. in your mind? Oh, definitely. When I was young, I had a football coach call me a boy. It didn't sit right with me. Black people don't like to be called boy. That's one thing that's worse than the N-word because the rappers are using the N-word all over. So you can be a white N, you can be a black N, you can be a Chinese N. You know what I mean? Like they're using the N-word. So it's not that in society, society is, is changing to where, you know, people are saying different things. But I mean, in my life, I played tennis. So just imagine there was a lot of times where I was the only black kid showing up at a tournament or showing up at an event. Sometimes when you're the only one, 
you become a novelty sometimes. And then <laughs> and then sometimes it's like, you shouldn't be here. How did you, hey, you handle that you here. shouldn't be here? It's hard to handle. It's very hard. For me, the way that I was able to handle it was to let my play, my play speak for itself. And just the way I handled myself. When I could hear the derogatory statements by people watching, it just made me want to try harder. You know, it made me want to press on. And because when you're in that situation and you're different than everyone else, the one thing you don't want to do is make a huge scene. Because once you make that scene, you could be totally right, but you're going to be wrong to everyone else. There's been times that I've made that mistake and blew up a little bit. Don't get me wrong. I, the life I've lived has been very diverse. There's been times when I've lost it, but the majority of the time, 98% of the time, I've been able to keep it in. It's yeah, but it's like, how do you release world. that, right? Because you, you got to. Yeah, and that's who, the who, thing. Who have you been able to release that to or talk to where somebody could make you feel better about it? I was able to talk to my grandpa about it. And then the way that I dealt with it, I, I dealt with it a lot of internally. I think when it comes to, depending on where you grow up and what you've learned, I think a lot of people that are African-American, you learn how to deal with that kind of stuff internally. Because you can talk to certain people and you'll get their opinion, but I think that what happens is, is that we internalize a lot of things. And we say, okay, you know, this has happened to me, but it's just making me stronger. It definitely is a thing. I think that's one of the things that should be uh, part of some kind of curriculum or some kind of learning is that people get a chance to talk about those kind of things and express their feelings. Because I think whether it doesn't matter if you're this person or that person, white, black, whatever, I don't think a lot of people let it out. I don't think a lot of people let it out. They just keep it internal. And then when you get around family members or people you feel comfortable with, you start talking about it. But talking about it with them is only going to get you so far because they probably have the same opinion you do. You need to talk to somebody that has a different opinion. You don't get hung up on the past. You move on. Did you, you ever talk to... about anti-Semitism with any of your Jewish friends? Oh, yeah. I know what it is. Oh, yeah. You know, so I got a book on my shelf. I've read it a couple of times. It's called The Secret Relationship Between Blacks and Jews. There's some things going on that people don't know, like, you know, and it mostly deals with the entertainment industry, you know, because if you know anything about anything, you know that behind the scenes, a lot of Jewish people run the entertainment industry, you know, and, and that's just what it is. You know, you got your hands in, in those things, but some of the stuff I don't agree with, some of the stuff I do agree with. I don't believe, one of the things that I don't like what's happening right now is that I feel like in certain industries, the male has been, is trying to be demasculated. I grew up in the 80s and 90s. I grew up with the sagging pants. You know, it was a different era. Things are changing and, and it's good. It's, it's okay. It's good. I'm not anti-Semitic, you know what I mean? So I'm not that person, you know, I know about the relationship of the Jews and the Nazis and you know, different people that, you know, have committed violence against Jews. And you know, like I said, my Jewish friends have always been great to me. But it's like, you can't date that girl, though. <laughs> you know what I mean? So Yeah, you know, how do you feel about that now? Now, I think I made the right choice, because <laughs> I probably could have got killed. So, <laughs> 
And know, who are you currently uh, dating? And, and how has that changed? Diversity is important to me. I have interracial kids. My goal in life is to make sure that they know both sides, that they don't have to pick sides like, like society is going to tell them to do because society is going to say that you're Black or you act this way or you're this way. I want them to know what it's like to go through the experience as a biracial person. To me, in my opinion, it's a, it's a beautiful thing because to me, they get both sides. And they don't have to struggle to get both sides. They can search it out and learn for themselves. And they get to be a part of two cultures. And I'm not saying that's for everybody. You know what I mean? Sometimes it's good to stick with your own kind. You know what I mean? That's just how we grow up. That's how we do. That's how life is for a lot of people. And that's okay. What's wrong with that? Nothing. Have they ever talked to you about feeling like they have to pick sides or that they don't fit into either culture? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think for girls in that situation, it's a little bit harder because I have girls and that's my experience. I think for girls, it's just a little bit harder because sometimes depending on how you grow up, girls are a little bit more emotional when things happen. They have to make a little bit more choices than boys do. You know, sometimes when you're a boy and you're growing up, life is a little bit easier than it is for a girl growing up, especially a girl that's biracial. And even if she's not, girls sometimes, they have to have good people around them because if not, then they're gonna get it from a lot of different sides. And so my thing is is that they make sure that they, that I wanna make sure that they have ample opportunity to learn what everybody's cultures are, you know, because I know exactly who I am and a lot, everyone doesn't know that. I have African blood in me. The most shocking thing that was cool about doing my DNA is I have Jewish blood in me and I have 23% Scottish blood in me. So black people are all over the place. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, That's cool. What's separate. your dad like? We just connected again. Him and my mom separated. And so this is a thing where I had to do some forgiving you know, because he, he left me and he left my sisters and he used to have a lot of excuses about why he did this and why he did that. We had a rough relationship. I missed out on having a dad. So that's why it's important to me to be a good father in mind. But we reconnected. He knows all is forgiven and we've moved on. And I needed that because How I How did you do that. that? I did it by wanting to be forgiven for the mistakes I've made. And becoming a better person for me is not just about forgiving others. First of all, it had to do with my inner self and getting my inner thoughts and my inner self together. So I just went through the checklist of everybody that I needed to forgive and I sought them out. When people go through sobriety, what they go through sometimes is that they have to make amends with people. At the top of my list was making amends with my my dad. I went there. I needed to see him in his environment. Then he came to my environment. Like, oh boy, like, how do you have this big old house? You know what I mean? Like, you know, one of the things I wanted him to understand when we reconnected was that if he ever needed anything, I'm there for you. But the one thing I don't want to keep talking about is the past. We're focusing on going forward now. So he texts me all the time. We talk. It's a beautiful thing because the one thing I didn't want to see was him pass away and not make amends with him, you know? So it was very important to me 
and now we're good. So beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. That is a beautiful thing. I know you don't want to live in the past, but what were the hardest moments where you really wish he could have been there? So one of the things that sticks out in my mind, and this is better called daddy, so I want to be blunt, honest. One day I'm at school in the seventh grade, and this kid, we would play basketball together, and we're both you know, on the same team and this and that. He's one of those kids that lives in the environment where the poor side of my family lives. So he sees me, and he's like, man, guess what, man? He's like, last night I sold your dad drugs, man. And I'm like, whoa. So he said it to me in private. And then when we get to lunch, he said it in front of everybody. So it was like, ah, oh, man. Like, I was so embarrassed. And that was one of the most hurtful moments because as a, in the seventh grade as a kid like that, I heard the rumors. You know, I heard these things. I already knew that it was part of life. But just now everybody knows, you know what I mean? So I had to go through that. And that was pretty, that was pretty crappy. But it made me stronger. The one thing it did for me is it sure that that kid didn't get my spot on the basketball team. So it kind of drove me to like practice harder, play harder, hustle more. You know what I mean? And I still remember his name to this day. His name is Marco. And I never forget it because he said it in front of everybody. That was hurtful. There were times where I went to try to stay with him for a summer because didn't want to always stay with mom, you know, and I could see the bad. So, yeah, I went through all that. But it made me strong, though. It made me good. If you don't see no bad, when the good is around you, you might not recognize it. Also, some of the youth that you worked with, I mean, don't you feel like you were able to connect to them or like to relate to them more from what you've gone through? Oh, yeah, especially those kids. When I say those kids, I'm saying kids that are in the inner city because sometimes they get so sheltered in that they think that no one else is going through what they're going through. There's kids going through it all over America. When they hear adults that have been through stuff like them, it definitely resonates. Sometimes when you run programs like that, kids have to take tests and they have to prove the results to the state. You have to prove the results because of grants whether it's character counts or whether it's the drug and violence program, you know, they want to see stats. It's all about numbers. I know I've helped so many kids. I can name them. I can know. I spent a lot of time counseling kids that, that are hurting. These inner city kids, a lot of people don't think that they're hurting because they, all they see on the news is violence. That's all they, but these people are hurting, you know, and they need help. And help is not always dollars. You know what I mean? Like dollars only get you so far. You need some people that want to, that really want to help and not just see them as another dollar. Like what led to you doing this motivational work? Just going through it myself, knowing what it feels like, knowing what it feels like. To me, you can only help someone if you have been through something. I can receive help from anybody and I can listen to you, but a person that's been through what I've been through is a little bit more easier to receive than someone you're thinking, oh man, once you get done talking to me, man, you're going to go live a good life. You know, here I am stuck here. I really don't, you don't relate to me. And that's why I wrote the book about the relationships. That's why I wrote the book about the opiate because I've been through that. I know what I know because I've been through it and knowing how to come out on the other side and how that feels is worth it all. What would you so. tell somebody who's currently struggling with addiction? I would tell them, first of all, I would tell them, talk to somebody. Don't be ashamed 
to talk to somebody. And once you open up a dialogue, do an analysis of yourself. Check yourself. Make sure that you see who you are and who you become. Because when you go through that a lot of times, you become a different person. And uh, you become so much disattached from your real self. I would say talk to somebody, analyze yourself, and then go get treatment. Go get help. Figure out what you're going to have to do to help yourself so you can help somebody else. You're awesome. I, I really enjoy what you do. And I, I really thank you for having me because you're, you're totally awesome. You're definitely an inspiration. Sometimes you find people to admire. And I admire what you do. And I admire you. You're Aww, awesome. You're awesome. Keep shining, woman. You're shining, though. You're shining. <laughs> thank you. Oh, That's good vibes. Good That's truthfully good vibes. Thank you. Thank you. Now. Let's switch it over to Grandpa. What did you think of Duke? We talked about lots of controversial things in this one. Well, Duke Lot is really giving you a very good definition of what true diversity is and how to really handle it and how to really learn about it and how to react to it. It's not really being prejudiced of one race or one religion over another, but to really surround yourself with as many as you can and experience them. Have friends, have associates where you get together with all different types of people and listen to each other and try to take the positive things of what people have to say and what they do. Isn't that what really diversity should be? I thought it was interesting when he said some people can't even have a conversation with you. If they believe what they believe, that's it. Right. You know, when I went to college, the four horsemen, was a Jewish fella, me, an Irish fella, a Scottish fella, and a black fella. And the four of us did everything together. When you live and breathe with such different people and where they become your friends, you're then colorblind to these prejudices. All of us have a common bond of humanity that's just staring you right in the face if you only just open your eyes and look. What did you think about him patching things up with his dad and how that kid poked fun of him at school? This was, I thought, was also something that is a real bright light that he shined on some of these things. One, when you are looking to give other people, you have to be able to forgive yourself first. You have to be open-minded that some of the things that you do wrong, others do wrong. And if you can get forgiveness for yourself, you can then be open enough to forgive other people. And by forgiving other people, you're actually helping solve some of your own wounds and your own imperfections. So I thought that was a very interesting parallel. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Better Call Daddy Show, please feel free to review it at ratethispodcast.com slash bettercalldaddy. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. Better Call Daddy.